0: Well, last week, last week we finished up chapter 9, and as I was reading through it, really that last paragraph of chapter 9 feels like it should be the first paragraph of chapter 10, because it flows right into what we're going to be speaking about throughout the next couple of weeks. As Jesus is going through all of the villages, all of the towns, he's preaching the good news of the kingdom, and he's healing every ailment. He's casting out demons. He's making people well. And it says that as he was looking at the people, he looked out over them and he had compassion on them because it said he looked like they were sheep that were harassed and without a shepherd. Now, we just finished um, in home group a couple months ago, our book on the 23rd Psalm, all about how we are sheep. And we learned a lot about sheep. And there's a reason why Jesus called us sheep, okay? I watched this video. I think I showed it once, but there is a guy, he's literally pulling a sheep out of a crevice, right? He pulls him out. He sets him on the ground. The sheep runs about 15 feet, jumps in the air, right down into the crevice again. Does that symbolize humans at all? Where we turn around, we do the exact stupid thing that we just got out of. But sheep have no natural defense mechanisms, okay? They're prone to disease. They headbutt each other. They fight amongst themselves. They're not very bright, Okay, and Jesus looks at this, at this group of people, the, the masses. And he says, They look like sheep without a shepherd. And he tells the disciples, He said, Listen, pray. That the, this is the fields are ripe for harvest. But he says, You need to pray to the Lord of the harvest that he will send out laborers into the fields to bring it in. And then he tells the disciples, All right, let's go. Pray to the Lord. For laborers, and now I'm making you laborers. I'm sending you out. William Barclay reports a story of Martin Luther. Um, Once he became convinced convinced that the biblical way of salvation was through God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, once he became convinced of that fact, he went and talked to a friend of his and he said, who also believed the same thing. And he said, we need to preach this message. We need to be intentional about it. We need to go out and convince people of this doctrine that became the central point of the Protestant Reformation. And so what they decided is that Luther would go out and he would preach and he would contend for the gospel and his friend would kind of lock himself away and pray for Martin Luther. He was going to intercede on behalf of him while he was out doing this. And as Luther would come back and he would share his obstacles, his challenges with his friend, his friend would increase the intensity of his prayers. And then one day he woke up, the Lord showed him a dream and he went and got Luther immediately and he said, I had this dream and it was the world and it was this huge field that spread all across the globe. And there was one single person who was out there working in the field. And as it got closer, it was Luther. Luther was that sole person out working in the field. And when he woke up, God had told him, it's not enough just to pray. We need to be laborers as well. And so he said, I need to join you in the work. I need to be out there with you, preaching, defending the faith, talking to people about the kingdom, the reality of the gospel. Now, he didn't didn't put away prayer, okay? He continued to pray, but he gave up his pious isolation to go out and be a laborer with him. We pray for laborers to be sent out, and then we actually go and do he sends us out. All right, this morning we are going to start chapter 10. We're going to do four verses today. I know it's going to, we're going to do more next week, I promise. No, actually, next week is Christmas Eve service, so we're not going to do it next week. Two weeks, we'll do more. First four verses, the 12 apostles. And he called to him, his 12 disciples, and gave them authority over unclean spirits, to cast them out and to heal every disease, every affliction. The names of the 12 apostles are these. First, Simon, who's called Peter. Andrew, his brother. James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. Philip and Bartholomew. Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector. James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus. Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Now, There are 42 verses in chapter 10, and there's no good place to stop. There's no good place to stop because the whole thing is Jesus giving instructions for ministry to the disciples. So what I thought we would do is I thought it would be good just to take a look at these disciples, these 12 men, this ragtag group that Jesus chose to surround himself with and then send them out. Now they've been with Jesus day and night. They've been observing everything he does. They've been watching, they've been learning, and now it's time to do. They've been students, now it's time to go do. They go from being disciples to apostles. Disciples are those who learn, right? They're learning, they're imitating. Apostles are those who are sent. They're the doers. Now they're men on a mission. And the first thing he does is empower the disciples to go out and do the work. The power that is rightfully his, he imputes into these disciples to go out and do the ministry and preach the kingdom. But boy, did they have a lot to learn. They still had a lot to learn, but he sent them out nonetheless. And there's an old, um, there's an old saying, and we have lots of these in the church, but this one is especially true. God doesn't call the equipped, okay? He equips the called. He doesn't just call those that are ready, those with special talents, he equips those whom he calls. Mark's gospel tells us that they were sent out two by two. They were sent out in pairs. They didn't go out alone. And that's a very important principle. That's something that people who are called into ministry have a tendency to miss because we're not called to be lone rangers. We're called to be those that have others next to us to keep us accountable, to encourage us. And that is because a lot of people who are called into the ministry of apostleship tend to be the doers, right? The motivated ones, the ones that just want to go out and get things done. So they tend to strike out on their own, but that's not the model that we're given by the Lord. They certainly could have covered a lot more ground, right? They could have reached more people if they had gone out individually, but that's not the model. Jesus said, I want you to go out two by two. And this is the reason Solomon writes this in Ecclesiastes chapter four, verses seven through 10. Again, I saw vanity under the sun, one person who has no other either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil, for if they fall, one will lift his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. So Jesus sent six pairs of men out to preach the good news of the kingdom. There's a fictional account of Jesus having a conversation with Gabriel after he has ascended, after he goes back to heaven. And Gabriel says to the Lord, he says, you died for the sins of the world. Jesus said, yes. And he said, you you must have suffered terribly at their hands. And Jesus said, yes. And Gabriel said, well, do they know? How many people know about what you've done for them, that you've taken their punishment, that you've taken their place? And Jesus said, well, there's, there's not very many, actually. There's about a dozen or so that know. And Gabriel's like, what? Are you, are you kidding me? How are people going to know? How are they going to hear about what you've done? And Jesus said, well, I, I told Peter and James and John and, and the rest of the guys to make it their business, to make it their life's work to go out and tell people to preach it. And then those people would tell other people and so on until it got to the ends of the earth. And people would know the power and the glory of the gospel. And Gabriel said, well, but what if it doesn't work? I mean, what if Peter fails? What if James and John, what if they go back to fishing? And what if the others are ashamed or they get scared? Like, what's your backup plan? And Jesus said, there is no other plan. There is no other plan. God placed the most important message in the history of the world, the message that would save mankind in the hands of a dozen ordinary men. He sent them out to tell people. That's the truth of the gospel. The only plan that Jesus has for letting the world know that he came to die for their sins is for you and I to go out and tell people. That is the truth. He gave us the responsibility to do that. Those of us who have experienced new life in Christ need to go out and tell others and bring them in. There is no plan B. Were the disciples highly qualified? No. Do they come from prestigious families? No. Religious affiliation? Didn't matter. So who made up this motley crew of disciples that Jesus empowered and sent out? In the places where the disciples are listed, Peter, Simon Peter, is always mentioned first. And Judas is always mentioned last. We always see Peter first and Judas last. Starting with the inner circle, right? Those who are closest to the Lord. And then kind of expanding out on those that we really don't know much about at all. So the first is Peter. Peter, disciple with the foot-shaped mouth, right? He was constantly putting his foot in his mouth. Uh, He would just say the first thing that came into his mind. He was the central figure of this group of disciples. He was the leader, and he spent more time with Jesus than anybody else. He asked lots of questions from the Lord. He was constantly questioning. He wanted to know the where and the why and the how and the when of Jesus' ministry. And Because he asked all those questions, he probably knew the Lord better than anybody else. He wanted to know what was going on no other disciple is mentioned more than Peter. In fact, in the New Testament, other than Jesus, no other name is mentioned more than Peter. He is a central figure, not only in the disciples, but of the early church itself. He'd ask lots of questions, but that helped him to get to know the Savior better. It's okay to have questions. Did you know that? We take a lot on faith, but it's okay to have questions. It's okay to dive into the scriptures as long as we are getting our questions answered from the scriptures, from the Lord. Peter liked to talk and God said, I can use that mouth to spread the gospel. He's gonna be an evangelist. Peter placed himself at the center of the action. God said, I can take that boldness and I can use it to accomplish my purposes. He was blessed by Jesus. He was also strongly rebuked by Jesus for some of the things that popped into his head and made it out of his mouth. He shared in the joy, but he also experienced the bitter sorrow. He had a reckless determination to be with the Lord and fight for the Lord. I think his life is really well summed up in the last words of his second letter. Grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forever. Amen. Peter was one who grew in grace. He was very graceless. He didn't have very much. He was, you know, rough around the edges, this fisherman. But he grew in grace as he grew in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And everything that he did was for God's glory. Next is James and John, the two fiery brothers. Now, Jesus at one point called them the sons of thunder. I think that sounds awesome. I would love to be called a son of thunder but it wasn't a compliment. <laughs> it wasn't a compliment. Apparently these two had very pretty bad tempers. Once they were leaving a Samaritan town, in this Samaritan town, they weren't listening to Jesus. They didn't want to have anything to do with Jesus at all. And James and John turned to Jesus and they're like, master, do you want us to call down fire from heaven and consume these guys? Jesus like, really? <laughs> Jesus, it's a Jesus rebuked them. Because that was their plan. They got ticked off and they wanted to call down fire from heaven. Jesus called, you guys are like sons of thunder. They were a little volatile, but they were zealous for the Lord. And God was going to use that fire to shape them into tools of grace. We actually don't know a lot about James. Um, A lot of the disciples... They didn't write, well, like Matthew and John and Mark, which is you know kind of written with Peter. We call that Peter's gospel. Um, but they wrote their accounts long years afterwards um, because when Jesus ascended and he gave them the great commission, he said, go and make disciples. And so they went. They didn't sit down and start writing. They went and made disciples. And years later, they wrote down these accounts. James didn't live long enough to write down an account. Okay, he died very early on. When Herod wanted to attack the newborn church, one of the first things he said is, go get James. Go arrest James. Bring him here. And he had him executed. Apparently, he saw James as one of the biggest threats to him and the surrounding area, to Roman rule. He had a huge impact. Although he lived just a short time after Jesus ascended, his fire burned bright for the Lord. His brother John, however, lived the longest of all the disciples. He lived the longest. He actually survived the attempt on his life. They took John, they wanted to kill him, and so they lowered him into a cauldron of boiling hot oil. But he didn't die. They put him in the oil, but he didn't die. So they exiled him to the island of Patmos. And this firebrand of the Lord would eventually be known as the disciple of love. We see that throughout his letters, this theme of love. And the world talks a lot about love, right? but what they really mean is um, what they really mean is tolerance. John grew in love, but he was extremely intolerant of falsehood and immorality. He was a powerful advocate of love, but also of uncompromising truth and you and I need to be those that have both. We need to have a love for people that flows out of our relationship for Jesus, but all, also those that have an uncompromising Um, love of the truth and don't let that become something that gets tainted we need to have an unyielding commitment to his truth it was John who was given the the revelation that uh, Jesus showed up on the island of Patmos gave him the book of Revelation that he wrote down as Jesus was dying on the cross he looked at John and he said John I want you to take care of my mother what a huge responsibility that he gave him and church history says that he stayed in Jerusalem, taking care of Jesus' mother until she died, and then he went out as well. He told Peter, tend my sheep. He told John, take care of my mom. Tradition says that in old age, since he lived, he eventually made it off the island of Patmos. And in his old age, he would go and visit the churches And they would usher him in and he would sit down and everybody would be sitting there waiting to hear what John the Apostle would have to say. And he would simply say, little children, love one another. That's what he is reported in church history to have said. And how much we need to hear that in the church today. You guys need to love one another. That's how people will know that you are my disciples, by your love for one another. Andrew... I love Andrew. He was actually a disciple of John the Baptist before he was a disciple of Jesus. John said, there goes the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. And Andrew's like, I'm going with him. And what that says to me is he was God-centered. As awesome as John was, he wasn't fixed on his personality. God was the center. And when he said, there goes the Messiah, Andrew said, I'm going with the Messiah. So he went and followed him. And what I like about Andrew too is not only did he follow the Lord, but he was constantly bringing people to the Lord. When Jesus fed the 5,000, it was Andrew who brought the little boy that had the, you know, the two loaves and the fishes, the loaves and the fishes. He brought him to Jesus. He also was the one that brought the disciple Philip to Jesus. He brought his brother Peter to meet Jesus. Now, after he brought Peter to meet Jesus, after Peter believed, he kind of lived in his brother's shadow from that time on. I, I've never really understood. I always wondered, you know, you have Peter and James and John. James and John are brothers. Peter and Andrew are brothers. Why wasn't Andrew part of the group? It's always stumped me. But what it says to me about Andrew is he was a humble guy. He brought people to the Lord, and he chose to work in anonymity for the Lord, Okay? We need more people like Andrew in the church. People that are okay with being second or third or fourth. People that can accomplish much because they don't care who gets the credit. They just want to bring people to the Lord and work for the Lord. And that's exactly what Andrew did. Andrew brought Philip. We don't know a lot about Philip. Uh, We're told that he was from the same region up there in Galilee as the rest of them. He was from Bethsaida, um, the place where Jesus made Um, his headquarters there in Capernaum. So he was probably a fisherman. Andrew brought Philip, but then Philip went out and did the same thing. Philip went and got Bartholomew. Jesus said, Philip, follow me. And he did. And then he went out and got somebody else, Bartholomew. Um, He was constantly bringing people to Jesus as well. But Philip, we're told, had some shortcomings, as they all did. But we're told some about Philip. Before feeding the 5,000, Jesus asked Philip, he says, Where are we going to get food to feed all these people? He asked Philip. And he said this as a test because Jesus knew what he was going to do. And Philip looked at the crowd and when he should have just put his faith expectantly in Jesus and what he was going to do, he started making calculations. He said it it would take half a year's wages to feed all of these people. He didn't exhibit his faith in Jesus. Kind of failed the faith test there as we all do. And in John 14, we hear this heartbreaking exchange where Jesus is talking to the disciples. And Philip says, you know, Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. And Jesus says, Philip, have I been with you so long and you still don't know me? That would have been a heartbreaking conversation to have heard there was a lack of spiritual perception, but that was something that all the disciples had in common, a lack of spiritual perception. Then we have Bartholomew. Bartholomew was also called Nathaniel. I'm glad that you guys didn't name me Bartholomew. <laughs> the guy had this, he had, it wasn't uncommon for them to have two names. Bartholomew was the same guy as Nathaniel. Actually wanted to name me Nathaniel, right? But then she said, well, everybody's just going to call him Nathan. And then people called me Nate, which really drove her crazy. <laughs> Thanks for not naming me Bartholomew, though. Uh, Nathaniel was from the city of Cana. Now, for you Bible students, you'll recognize that name, the name of that city, because that's where Jesus performed his first miracle at that wedding for those newlyweds there in Cana. He was brought to Jesus by Philip, and we can deduce that Nathaniel was a student of the scriptures because when Philip came to Nathaniel, he said, we have found the one that Moses and the prophets have been writing about, the Messiah, and it's Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. So Philip knew what he was talking about, um, and, and Bartholomew knew what Philip was saying, and it shows that um, you know, he was a student of scriptures, but it also shows in this next thing that he said that he suffered from a little bit of prejudice. Because when Bartholomew says this, he says, well, Bartholomew says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip says, we found him. It's Jesus of Nazareth. He's like, Nazareth? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Can anything good come out of Grandview? <laughs> come on. That backwater hick town? That's what they thought of Nazareth. Um, we, um, this is what we did yesterday. We, we traveled down to Branson. One of my favorite places. Not really. And we went down there to Sight and Sound Theater and we went and saw the mystery of Christmas, right? And it was kind of interesting because they start off with Joseph and Mary getting betrothed there in Nazareth. And they're inside this huge building with columns and it's very fancy and all of this stuff. But Nazareth was like a hick town. It wasn't anything like that. In that. I mean, it made for a good show. It wouldn't have been exciting if it was just a couple shacks, but it was a really good show. But Nazareth was this backwater town that nobody expected anything to come from. Actually, as a matter of fact, when the disciples were there, um, after Jesus had been betrayed, Peter was standing there next to the fires, and they said, you were with him. Your speech betrays you. You're a Galilean. You're talking like a Galilean. You're from the north, kind of like we say you're from the south. you got a southern drawl. The men in Galilee had a certain kind of twang or dialect about them that gave them away. But fortunately, his desire to know the Lord overcame his prejudice. As Philip uttered, uttered those words to him, he said, come and see. Can Anything good come out of Nazareth? Come and see. And he did. Listen to what Jesus says about him. As he's walking up, Jesus says this. He says, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. That's a pretty high compliment when you meet the Messiah for the first time. Listen to what John writes in John 1.48. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. And Jesus answered him, because I said I saw you under the fig tree, you believe? You're going to see greater things than this. Just because I saw you, you believe? Man, wait till you see some of the things that are going to happen. Nathaniel might have had some prejudices, as most of us do, but they melted away in the presence of Jesus. Now, we don't really know anything else about him, but what we know speaks volumes. Jesus said he is a true Jew. He's a true Jew. You know what Paul wrote? He said, a true Jew is somebody who is not just a Jew outwardly, but is one inwardly. Not just in outward form, not just in keeping traditions and being circumcised. It's somebody who is a Jew inwardly, who has a circumcised heart, who's listening for the Lord, who's cutting away the things of this world, the things that hold us back from chasing after him. That's what a true Jew is, and that's what Jesus was talking about here with Nathaniel. Jesus said he saw him in the secret place. Hopefully, Jesus sees us in the secret place, pursuing him, spending time with him, devotions, reading the word. We'd love to hear that there is somebody in whom there is no deceit. Then comes Thomas. You know, Thomas gets a really bad rap, I think. We call him doubting Thomas. Um, And that's a phrase that's been used throughout the generation, throughout the years, to define somebody who has a hard time accepting something. But what we know of Thomas gives us some insight that he was actually a man of fortitude and strong dedication. When Jesus received the news that Lazarus, his friend, had died, Jesus said, you know what? Actually, I'm glad that we weren't there because you guys need to believe. This is one of Jesus's last big miracles and the disciples are still riding the roller coaster of faith. And Jesus says, let's go wake up our friend. And the disciples freak out because The Pharisees are after him. They're looking to kill him. And when he hears that he wants to go back to Bethany, they freak out. They're like, it's dangerous. Jesus said, we're going to Bethany. And Thomas says, let us go with him that we can die also. That's what Thomas said. Nobody else did. Everybody else was freaking out. Thomas is like, I'm going with him. I'm all in. It might be dangerous, but I'm going with the Lord. I'm going to walk right beside him, even if that means that I I lose my life too. I don't know about you, but I want guys like Thomas in my life, guys that walk with him fearlessly no matter what the consequences. I read a story this week of a bohemian king called John the Blind, and he was a king who lost his eyesight when he was just 39 years old, but it was his death at age 50 that caught my attention. They were going into war, they were going into battle, and he didn't want to send his men in all by themselves. And so he decided that he was going to ride into battle with his men. And so what he did, because he couldn't see, he got on his horse, and he took two of his best knights, and he put one on his left, and he put one on his right. And what they did is they intertwined the reins of their horses And these knights were saying, whatever his fate will be, that will be our fate. We're riding into battle next to our king. And Thomas was a guy who said, I'm riding into battle with my king. It doesn't matter where he goes. I'm going to be right next to him, even if it means my life. But then Thomas's worst nightmare came true. The king died and he was still alive. All of them were spared, but the king was dead. That was probably a fate worse than death for him. All of the things that he was ready to die for were now seemingly gone. It's almost impossible to imagine the range of emotions that Thomas would have been dealing with, but it's understandable that when the disciples said, we have seen the Lord, that he got upset because it would have been like salt in the wound, so to speak. For someone whose life has been shattered, it's really difficult to convince them that things will ever be made right again. Whenever there's a sense of hopelessness, optimism seems irritating. I don't know if you've ever been in that place where you feel hopeless and somebody comes in all optimistic and happy. It's irritating. And I think it's one of the reasons why Thomas got so upset. If you remember, Jesus appeared to the other 10. They were all in the upper room. They were locked in there. They were scared for their lives. They were hiding out. Jesus appears to the 10. He just appears in the room, right? But Thomas isn't there. Where was Thomas? Thomas. I suggest to you that Thomas was out in the open. He wasn't hiding. He already felt cowardly. The king was dead and he was still alive. So he says, Unless I put my fingers in the nail prints in his hands, unless I put my hand in in the speared hole in his side, I will not believe. Thomas gets a hard time for that statement, but the others didn't believe it too. Right, Because if they did believe it, they would have been by the tomb on the third day when Jesus said, I'm going to rise again. And a week later, they're still in this upper room and this time Thomas is with them and Jesus appears in the room again and he singles out Thomas. And he asked him to do the very thing that he said he would have to do to have faith that he had risen from the dead. He said, put your fingers in the nail holes and put your hand in my side and believe. And Thomas says, my Lord and my God. And Jesus He gently rebukes Thomas. He said, Because you've seen me, you believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and believe. Now, he rebuked Thomas, but this was really a rebuke for all the disciples because although Thomas said it, all the rest of them were thinking it too. They were the ones that were hiding out when Jesus had said, I'm coming back. Now, We've been talking about Matthew for over a year, so we don't have to get too much into Matthew. You guys know all about him. Um, He was the picture of a true convert. He had wandered away from the faith. He was even working against the faith, but then he responded to the call to come back and work with the Lord, and he brought his friends too. He brought his friends to meet Jesus. He was a real-life prodigal that came back to the Father's house and got busy about his business, giving us this detailed account of Jesus' ministry. Then the next three disciples, these are three of the most obscure men we don't know hardly anything about, James, the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, and Simon the Zealot. James, the son of Alphaeus, in The Chosen, if you've watched it, I haven't watched any of season three yet. I want to watch a couple episodes today. I still haven't seen it. It's killing me. Um, In The Chosen, they call him Little James, right? Big James and Little James. How's that for a nickname? Uh, In the Gospels, he's called James the Less. That sounds terrible, right? (laughs) James the Less. Maybe he was younger or maybe he was shorter, shorter in stature. We don't really know. But he certainly had less of an impact than Big James did as far as his presence goes in the scriptures. But here's the thing. Jesus chose him. If you feel today like you are less or like you are ordinary, remember James the Less. James, son of Alpheus, Jesus chose him to be part of the group. Chose him, an ordinary person, in ordinary ways to accomplish this extraordinary task of taking the gospel of the kingdom to the world. Thaddeus, Thaddeus actually has one verse in the Bible, and it's in John 14. They're sitting around the table at the Last Supper, and Thaddeus asked the Lord, he said, Lord, what then has happened that you're going to disclose yourself to us and not to the world. Like, why are you going to show us who you are, but not to the world? I mean, we're just a bunch of nobodies. Why are you going to just keep it here and not not you know, announce it to everybody? And the thought behind this question is, Jesus, you're the Messiah. The Messiah is the one that's supposed to come and make everything right. He is going to be a political or military ruler. He is going to overthrow our enemies. He's going to set up a kingdom on earth. That all has to be seen outwardly people need to see it why would you just tell us right up until the night that he was betrayed they were still questioning but Jesus was gracious enough to keep teaching he actually took that question as an opportunity to keep i will give Thaddeus credit for asking the question a lot of people never ask the question he asked the question of Jesus because he wanted to understand more about Jesus and his ministry again it's okay to have questions it's all right We have people in our culture today, um, they call, you know, deconstruction. People are deconstructing their faith because they didn't have a strong hold on the faith to begin with. And so they're questioning what they believe. And a lot of times as they deconstruct their faith, they start plugging in things that they like, personal preferences, not what's based on Scripture. And they end up, a lot of them, walking away from the faith because what they thought they knew, they don't believe anymore. It's okay to ask questions, but find your answers here in the Word Don't just take it from other people. Simon the Zealot. I talked a little bit about Simon last week. It's really interesting that Jesus chose a zealot to be part of the group. I would have thought that he would have been one of the most difficult to convince, one of the most difficult to get to follow him. But once he did follow him, I would have thought that he would have been the most committed. I say that because these zealots had dedicated their lives to overthrowing and undermining the Roman authority there in Israel. And they had already taken an oath. That they would have been like the Army Rangers or the Navy SEALs of today. They were highly trained assassins. And as an assassin, as a zealot, you would have taken an oath that you had given up your life. You already considered your life void for the greater purpose of trying to overthrow Rome. So when. He's won over. He starts following Jesus. And Jesus is talking about how you're going to have to deny yourself. You're going to have to lay down your life. You're going to have to pick up your cross and follow him. I think Simon was probably the first one that got that. He's like, all right, I know this. I know this language. I've already laid down my life. I already considered myself dead. And as his followers, we're told not to be consumed with the things of the world. We're supposed to reckon ourselves dead to sin, dead to the world. Not to be caught up in the things of the flesh because our goal is eternity with the Lord, to make him known, to know him and to make him known, not the temporary pleasures of this world. We may not know much about James or Thaddeus or Simon, but Jesus told them, you're ones that are going to sit on thrones. You're going to be judging the 12 tribes of Israel, not just Peter, not just James or John, all of them. Even the ones we don't know anything about because they gave it all up to follow Jesus. These are some of the people that the writer of Hebrews were talking about in chapter 11 when he writes, They experienced mockings and scourgings, yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted. They were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins, in goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men of whom the world was not worthy. Wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground, and all these gained approval through their faith. And of course, there's the disciple that always is mentioned last Judas. We don't know actually a lot about Judas. Iscariot means man of Kiriath. Judas Iscariot means man of Kiriath. Kiriath was located about 20 miles or so south of Jerusalem. And the people in the south that lived in the south of, of Israel tended to be a little bit more affluent, tended to be a little bit more educated than those in the north in the poor fishing villages up in the north. And so who knows? Maybe Judas had an air of superiority about him. We don't really know. Um, but he w- did have a place of honor among the group. If you think about it, at the last supper, he was sitting next to Jesus. That would have been a place of honor to sit next to the rabbi. And we're also told that he was the one that was put in charge of the money. So again, he was somebody that was extended trust. He had every opportunity. And we get a glimpse of his selfishness and his love of money when that woman bursts into the room that Jesus and his disciples are meeting with. And she goes in and she breaks open that bottle of perfume. This bottle of perfume that we're told cost a year's wages. And she pours it all over Jesus. And Judas says, what a waste! This could have been sold for a huge sum and given to the poor. But in John's gospel, he tells us he didn't say it because he cared about the poor. He cared about it because he's the one that kept the money bag and he would help himself to it from time to time. He was a thief. He was taking money for himself. He said, what a waste. But Jesus called him the son of perdition. Perdition means waste. He wasted his life instead of, Being a true follower of Jesus, even though he witnessed the miracles, listened to the teachings, followed Jesus for nearly three years, he still fell out. Perhaps he was only in it for the notoriety. If he was motivated by money, maybe he had bet it all on Jesus being a Messiah who was going to set up a physical kingdom on earth, who was going to take out their enemies, set up an empire that he would have a special place in. And when it became apparent that that wasn't going to be the case, that he was going to die, maybe that's when he turned his back on him. A wrong understanding of the Lord and his ways. And when you hear people who are angry at the Lord, who have a violent attitude towards the Lord, they have a wrong understanding of the Lord and his ways. Because they've placed themselves at the center of the story. And when you're at the center of the story and you have unmet expectations about how God should work, you're always going to lash out in angry ways, with feelings of betrayal. King David unknowingly prophesied about his betrayal in Psalms 41 when he wrote, Even my close friend, in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. And Zechariah predicted the price of the betrayal, 30 pieces of silver. And here on, herein lies a great paradox. Uh, we talked about this Thursday night. Divine sovereignty versus human will. Divine sovereignty versus human will. Are we chosen or do we get to choose? If it was prophesied that there was going to be somebody who betrayed Jesus and Jesus knew it was Judas, what kind of choice did Judas have? That's what people would say. It doesn't seem fair. Jesus said it would have been better for him if he had never been born. And people have a real problem with this. Just briefly, because we need to wrap up, I want to clarify exactly what's going on when the topic of God's sovereignty versus man's choice comes up. Every single person must make a personal decision to follow Jesus Christ. That's man's choice. But every believer who does so was chosen before the foundation of the world to believe in Jesus. That's God's sovereignty. You have to make the choice, but God knows what choice you're going to make. That has to be something that you settle in your mind. You can drive yourself a little bit batsy trying to figure it out. But if you're unsure whether or not you've been chosen, you can make a choice today and be absolutely sure. He knew before the foundation of the world. Jesus was given every opportunity, but in the end, he rejected Jesus. And I don't think he just rejected Jesus in a fit of anger. Like all relationships, it happens a little bit at a time. When you let your heart drift Okay, due to un- unmet expectations. And when you are enthralled with somebody one moment and then years away, you're you're, you know, way far apart, you choose selfishness instead of a service, our heart can grow cold. And then rejection becomes inevitable. That's what happened to Judas. Now, It's encouraging to me when I read through this list to realize that Jesus called these 12 men not on the basis of their worthiness or their giftedness, okay? Not because of their capabilities or their faithfulness. It's quite the opposite. We see that quite to the contrary. I've heard people make statements that there must have been something super special about the disciples for Jesus to choose them, but it's completely the opposite. The fact that there was nothing special in and of themselves, He didn't choose them because of who they were, but because of who they could be when his power was flowing through them. The only thing that made them special was that Jesus chose them. They were spiritually dull at times. They lacked spiritual perception. There'd be times where Jesus would tell a parable and they would be nodding along, along with everybody else. And then they would get alone with Jesus and they would say, hey, um, can you explain that parable to, I mean, I know what it means, but I don't think Thaddeus knows. So if you could explain it to the group, that would be great. We just read a couple times where Jesus said, are you still lacking understanding? They struggled just like the rest of us to grasp these spiritual principles, these concepts, deal with the present prejudices and pre-existing mindsets. At one point, Jesus was telling them, I have to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be killed. I'm going to be arrested and put to death. I'm going to be crucified. And Peter starts rebuking Jesus. Can you imagine? He jumps up and he starts rebuking, gee, you need to stop saying things like this. That's not going to happen. Then, of course, after his death, they completely ignore the fact that he told them, I'm going to raise again in three days. They despair. They go into hiding. At one point, they go back to fishing. Jesus shows up to call them out on it, which I think is great. They also lacked humility. Not only did they fail to understand some of the things that Jesus was telling them, but they assumed they knew more than they actually did. They were proud. They were jealous. They were envious of one another. Oftentimes, they were more concerned about their own prestige and welfare than Jesus's work, his mission. In Luke 22, they're seated in the upper room, and they're you know they're having the Passover meal. Jesus is telling them all about what what's about to happen, and he's instituting communion. And after they're done, they start arguing amongst each other about who is the greatest. Jesus just said, I'm going to be killed. They're like, man, I think I'm the best one. I think I'm going to be the one that gets to sit next to him. At one point, Salome, the mother of James and John, comes up to Jesus. And he said, hey, you know, Jesus, I just want to ask you for a favor. When you come into your kingdom, can my sons, James and John, can they sit on your right hand and your left hand? And they must have been standing right next to her. Who knows? Maybe they put their mom up to it because Jesus looks at James and John and he says, are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? And they're like, yeah, I think we can do that. Jesus says, you have no idea what you're asking. And I have to wonder what Salome felt, what she was thinking when she was at the foot of the cross and she was staring up at Jesus and there's a thief on his left hand and there's a thief on his right hand. There's two people on either side of Jesus. She had to have been thinking, what in the world was I doing, asking him that? What a foolish question. They also struggled with lack of faith. On multiple occasions, Jesus looked to them and said, oh, you have little faith. You've seen my power. You've seen my goodness. And you still have trust issues. They struggled with faith. And their weak faith resulted in a lack of commitment when Jesus needed it most. Peter said, I'll never leave you. I'll die for you. I'll never turn my back on you. And when Jesus was arrested in the garden, they all split, all of them. Actually, Peter took his sword out first and started swinging it at a servant boy. Okay, you had a Roman cohort. You had the temple guards. He takes out his sword and starts swinging at a kid. Very brave, Peter. I will never leave you. I will never turn my back on you. They also lack power in and of themselves. We can have the worship team come back up. They lacked power in and of themselves. There was a man who brought a demon-possessed boy, his son, to the disciples, but they couldn't heal him. They tried. They, They couldn't cast out the demon by themselves. So they bring the boy to Jesus, and apparently Jesus had had another very long day. Because listen to what he says. He says, oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? I think that'd be a good Mother's Day verse. How long am I to bear with you people? Jesus was frustrated. They lacked power in and of themselves. Thankfully, though, Jesus dealt with the disciples' lack of understanding by continuing to patiently teach them. And he dealt with their lack of humility by demonstrating humility. He dealt with their lack of faith by demonstrating the power of God. He dealt with their lack of commitment by praying for them. And he dealt with their lack of power by sending the Holy Spirit to be their helper. And when that happened, when the Holy Spirit fell on the disciples, all their training, all their learning fell into place. Only when they were empowered by the Holy Spirit, Acts 4 says that they began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. And they recognized it because they began to act and talk like Jesus Mark 3.14 says that he appointed the twelve, whom he also named apostles, so they might be with him. And guess what? They became like him. When people question the validity of the resurrection, all you have to do is look at the lives of the disciples, the way they lived, and the way that they died. The way they turned the world upside down. All of them, except for John, died brutal deaths. They didn't die defending a lie. They died that way because they knew the truth that Jesus was the Messiah, that he came to cleanse the world from sin and he did it in our place. Peter, Peter was crucified upside down because he said, I'm not worthy to be crucified like my Lord. You know, crucify me upside down. Andrew was crucified as well. Church history says that he he was crucified on an X. Tradition says that Nathaniel and Thomas went as far as India Preaching the kingdom, but both of them were speared to death. Matthew is reported to have been stabbed to death in Ethiopia. And James the Less, James the Less was stoned and clubbed to death. All you have to do is look at the lives of these men and how they died. It's, It's said that Peter's wife was crucified first before him. And the report is saying: remember the Lord. At some point, if it wasn't real, they would have said, stop. The whole thing is a lie. You can find his body here. All they would have had to have done is produce the body. But these men went to their death believing Jesus is the Messiah. We're going to rule and reign with him forever in eternity. And that happened because he empowered them and sent them out. You and I, as followers of Jesus, are to be empowered and sent out regardless of where we're called to go. Regardless of our sphere of influence, we're called to be those that speak the truth, stand up for the truth, and live as his witnesses. That's what he said to do. You are to be my witnesses across the globe. And he has empowered us to do that by sending his Holy Spirit, which lives inside of every believer, lives inside of you, lives inside of me, gives us the direction, the encouragement that we need to walk in the truth and speak it out. Amen. That's who these guys were, just normal guys, just like you and me. But they gave it up. They gave up everything to follow the master.